Once again, we'll take up the reading in uh, Daniel 7, and we'll start at uh, verse 15 to the end of the chapter. Daniel 7, uh, from verse 15. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached the one who stood there and asked him for the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall rise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. Then I desired to know the truth about the four beasts, which are different from all the rest. The fourth beast, sorry, which is different from all the rest. Exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. And about the ten horns that were on the head, and the other horn that came up, before which three of them fell, and the horn that had eyes, and a mouth that spoke great things, and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them, until the Ancient of Days came, and the judgment was given to the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be a different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it in pieces. As for the tenth, ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them, and he shall be different from the former ones, and he will put down the three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the laws, and they shall be given into the hands for a time, times, and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away, to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under a whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. This kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me. My colour changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. Let's ask the Lord's blessing on his word this afternoon. Our Heavenly Father, as we come before you again this afternoon, we, we ask for the presence of your Holy Spirit, that as we hear your word proclaimed, that we may again be brought to see the work of Jesus Christ and the confidence we can have in his rule and his dominion and his victory over Satan. And this will invigorate us to be faithful in our confession and in our life for the glory of your name. So strengthen us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, we come to the task of interpreting Daniel's vision. 
And you'll notice in this vision that there's a focus on the fourth beast. Uh, if you're familiar with Daniel, you'll know that the second and third beasts are the subject of Daniel 8. And so uh, Daniel will be given another vision with, with different uh, images, and that will deal with the uh, second and the third beasts. But as, as we look at this and consider the interpretation again this afternoon, just to remind you of what we considered this morning, that there's two mountains, Christ's first, second, and first and second coming, and there's one horizon. And, and the, the prophecies see them frequently in one horizon. Secondly, there's the, the telescopic character that uh, what is far off can often appear near. And it's those two things that we'll look at with regard to the establishment of the kingdom and the character of the kingdom. They, they correspond roughly to the two mountains and one horizon with the establishment of the kingdom and the telescopic character with the character of the kingdom. But we had the third uh, instrument or third literary device as well, and that's the covenant character. I've, I've chosen to, to weave that through uh, uh, the various discussions that we're having with regard to the establishment and the character of the covenant. It doesn't break down easily into three, and so I've decided to go with the two points this afternoon and, and to unpack this vision in accord with that. So first of all, we'll look at the establishment of the kingdom, and secondly, the character of the kingdom. I would encourage you to have your Bibles available and accessible uh, because we will be referring to various portions of Scripture uh, through the course of this afternoon's message. But first of all, the establishment of the two kingdoms. And as we, we consider this, it's the two mountains and Daniel's situation that, that he is in as he receives this vision. We noted in verse 1, it's the first year of Belshazzar. Uh, there's, there's tumult, and, and he has these visions in his head, and yet there's tumult of the sea. And, and it's a reminder that, that things are very unsettled. Whenever the Israelites talked about the sea, they regarded the sea as a place of, of uh, a great, great uh, controversy, and that there, there's a lot of unsettlement there. They weren't sea people, and so they feared the sea. It's a bit like moving to New Zealand. We, we had never been around the ocean, and there's still this fear and trepidation with regard to the sea. We just don't know how it's going to act. And the same is true frequently when, when the sea is mentioned in Scripture. It's because they, they regarded this as, as a place of upheaval and a place of danger and a place of distress. And this is what has happened. And yet, Daniel sees that, that God is even in control of this. And, and this has happened already previously. If you, you think back to what Daniel 4 verse 32 talks about, that Nebuchadnezzar came to this realization. Nebuchadnezzar said that it is the Most High who rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. So these are all designs that God is going to be working and overruling this sea to accomplish his purpose. And these four beasts that Daniel sees resemble uh, the, the four different characters of Nebuchadnezzar's vision. It's actually a, a very good way to think about this. This is the last chapter in uh, Daniel that is written in Aramaic. And so, so there is a worldwide audience that is reflected in this, that this worldwide audience is, is reflected in Daniel's writing this in Aramaic and in chapter 8 and following it will change 
than to Hebrew, so it's more targeted to God's people. But as we hear these visions and as we see the vision of Nebuchadnezzar and, and recognize what Nebuchadnezzar saw as a huge statue, as part of the accomplishment of man, and, and he regarded governments as this significant thing that showed the handiwork of man, Daniel sees it as a beast, as four beasts, actually. And these beasts are vicious and they're threatening. And this is a contrasting view of governments. We, we live with that in our own day. There's, there's an inherently good view of governments, that, that they're the accomplishment of man. And we, we look to the government to help us. And we think if there's a problem, we expect the government to, to solve it. And we, we look to the government for their authority. But Daniel has a different vision, a different understanding, and, and this reflects what God's Word teaches about government, that, that He is in control of them, and that they can be vicious, and they can be a violent aggressors. And that's how God regards them. God knows, God knows, you see, that without His hand of restraint, if He lifts His hand off a government, it's going to deteriorate because of the character of man's depravity that will be, be displayed when his hand of restraint is removed. And that's what happens. And so these beasts are the four kingdoms. Let's just explain the beast just a little bit. We didn't read that portion. We read it this morning. And so I'd just like to, to refer to the first, first beast, beast. It is the lion who had wings like an eagle. It's a display of the Babylonian kingdom. It was the first empire, royal and beautiful. But notice the focus is on the heart. This beast was like a lion, had eagle's wings, and then I looked at its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of man was given to it. It, it becomes humane. And remember, this is Nebuchadnezzar and his humiliation. Remember, Daniel has this vision in the first year of Belshazzar. This, the Babylonian kingdom is still in control. And through his humiliation, Nebuchadnezzar is restored and becomes human again. Amazing is the restraint that God exercised over Nebuchadnezzar, that he could humble him and cause Nebuchadnezzar to realize that he was the ruler over all things. Then there's another beast. So that beast uh, uh, is removed from the scene, and then there's another beast, a second beast, one like a bear. And this, of course, would be the Medo-Persian Empire. This was Darius, and then later it would be Cyrus. And this is a bear, a voracious appetite for, for its kingdom. And it devours, and it attacks, and it's, it's got three ribs. It's, it's hard to say what those three ribs are. It's possible that it could be Lydia, Egypt, and Babylon as the three kingdoms that they overthrew. But, but there's variation. There's, there's one side that's larger than the other or raised up, it says. It's possible because the, the Persian Empire was bigger than the Mede Empire. That, that We're not quite sure how it all works. But it is the Medo-Persian Empire. Then the next beast. The next beast is a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. Now, a leopard is one of the fastest Creatures. It was known for its swiftness, and this would be the Greek Empire. 
The Greek Empire is represented under the rule of Alexander the Great, and he was feared because of the speed with which he established his empire. His father Philip had, had gained control of Macedonia, the, the Greek region, and he gave the kingdom of Greece to his son Alexander at age 20. And in 13 years, by the time he was 33 years old, Alexander, using the, the military tactics that he learned from his father, was able to overthrow Egypt, Persia, and Syria. He moved very swiftly, and he was feared because of that swiftness. But he died at a young age with the largest empire in the history of the world at that time. And when he died, his kingdom was divided. The four wings of the bird reflect the fact that his kingdom, or sorry, the beast had four heads, uh, that it was divided between his four generals. And then the last beast. And notice it's not identified as a beast. It's terrible. It's frightening. But it doesn't have a name. It's almost super animal as something that is superhuman. It's phenomenal in the amount of destruction, terror, and power that this kingdom has. And this would be the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was unique in her ability. There was the Pax Romana, or the Peace of Rome, to establish peace by the use of her power. She would use threats and she would use violence to make sure people lived in peace. And it's during this Roman Empire that Christ would come. And we need to recognize that that is what Daniel is seeing. But even as we consider that this afternoon, I would suggest, and I think Scripture is quite clear, that, that what Daniel is seeing is the accomplishment of Jesus Christ in the time of the Roman Empire through his three years of earthly ministry. But this is different from what many Christians think today, especially those who hold to uh, the end times view of dispensationalism. And they would suggest that what Daniel sees is something, they, they push this right to the return of Christ. And because he sees so clearly the establishment of a godly kingdom, they regard this kingdom is a, a reflection of political power, of material and social prosperity, and a place and a region of Israel that would be restored. And that because that's their understanding of a kingdom, with the institution and establishment of a kingdom that will go on forever, they push it right to the end when Jesus returns and they suggest that a Davidic kingdom is going to be restored. In other words, what they see is what Daniel is teaching here is all future. They see the two mountains and they say, oh, this doesn't have to do with the first mountain. This has to do with the second mountain, with the return of Christ, following the rapture that God is going to establish another earthly kingdom. But I would suggest, and I think God's word is quite clear in this, as we, we remember the, the two different ways of interpreting with the two mountains, one horizon, with the telescopic view, and the covenantal character, that Daniel is describing what takes place in the time of Christ. This is a prophecy about the ascension 
of our Lord Jesus. Verse 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days. Notice where he's going. He's ascending into the presence of the Father. And this is exactly what Jesus has done. Matthew 28 reminds us of this, and Acts 1 reminds us that, that when Jesus ascended, the clouds hid him from the view of the disciples, but he ascended with the clouds into the presence of his Father. And he came with the clouds into heaven. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. So that Christ is the one who has established the kingdom. That the kingdom that, that Daniel is seeing is not something future, but it's established by the work of Jesus. And that was Jesus' ministry. That is, he is present and he is is reigning on the throne is reflected in what Scripture teaches about his ministry. So that John the Baptist came and he called Israel, repent and believe because the kingdom of God is at hand. And when Jesus began his ministry, Matthew 4 says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And then also Matthew 12 verse 28 Matthew 12, verse 28, Jesus is interacting with the Pharisees who are accusing him of, of casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub. And as the power of Beelzebub, they're saying, you're using demonic forces to drive out demons. And Jesus says this, he says, if I drive out demons, this is Matthew 12, verse 28, if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, which he is obviously doing, then... The kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus was well aware that his work, his earthly ministry, that he is the fulfillment of this prophecy. In fact, later when he's in, in front of the Jews and he says this applies to him, they charge him with blasphemy because he's taken upon himself the name of the Son of Man, which they recognize as a reference to this prophecy in Daniel, and they accuse him of blasphemy. Because who is he that he thinks he is the one to establish the kingdom? But now, if this kingdom is established, what does that mean for us? Here's where I'd like you to turn with me in your Bibles. Here is the blessing today for us as the church of Jesus Christ in 2022 living in the kingdom of God. Turn with me. This is uh, the inspired commentary on the work of Jesus to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 1, and notice how this is tied uh, to the work of Jesus. Uh, we'll begin reading with verse 17. And see how this closely compares with what Daniel has said and was revealed to Daniel. Remember what Daniel says in verse 13, And behold, the clouds of with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came as the ancient of days and was presented before him. To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Now listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 1. Paul says this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says this in verse 17. 
that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, you hear the Ancient of Days, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation, again, the apocalyptic understanding and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, and what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And verse 19 particularly. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ. Now here again, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This has happened. This has happened when God worked his power in raising Jesus from the dead and ascend, having him ascend into heaven and sitting him at the right hand in heaven above all rule and authority and power and dominion. That again is, is what Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 2. Remember Philippians chapter 2 refers to the, the humiliation of Christ, that, that he being in the form of God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But listen now to what uh, uh, God's Word says, Philippians 2 verse 9. Therefore, because Jesus became obedient even to death on the cross, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Our confession of Jesus Christ as Lord is a witness to the presence of God's kingdom, that we live under his dominion. And this is what Jesus taught about himself as he prepared to ascend. He said in Matthew 28, verse 18, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So the kingdom has been established, not at the end of time, but now with the, the earthly ministry and the resurrection and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. That has happened. But then secondly, what is the character of the kingdom? What is the character of the kingdom? Why is it that there is such a strong push by, by people today, by brothers and sisters in the Lord, those of a dispensational flavor, uh, to, to look at the kingdom as future. I've already alluded to that because, because for them, uh, they think of the kingdom as a political system with a national place in Israel that will resemble everything that God had given to David. But again, Scripture knows of a kingdom that is different. That kingdom, the Davidic kingdom, would be politically powerful. 
It would use the language, the covenant language of, of a land and of a people and of a temple. And, and they believe that that is the, the literal meaning. And so we have to follow that through. And the only time that that can be accomplished is when Christ has established that here on earth. And we recognize that that's the sort of Messiah that the Jews of Jesus' day were looking for. And it's the sort of Messiah that many in evangelical Christianity are waiting for, too. But God's Word identifies a different character to the kingdom. What is it that God's Word teaches about the kingdom of God that we can recognize? It is present here and now that we need to celebrate the, the rule of Jesus Christ that is here now. It's the realm of saving power. Where God supernaturally carries through His supremacy, His rule, His dominion over all opposition, personal and demonic, political and any other sort of opposition, and brings particularly those who are elect, those who are dead in their trespasses and sins, to bow the knee before Jesus Christ in recognition of His rule. It is not a political entity. Turn with me to John 18, verse 36. John 18, Jesus talks about the character of his kingdom and how it is not a political entity. It's not something that is to be judged by, by the systems of this world. His kingship is entirely different. And this happens in the context in which Jesus is before Pilate. And Pilate asks him this question. Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, this is verse 34, Do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Jesus recognized that his kingdom wasn't a political kingdom. It wasn't a restoration of a Davidic kingdom. It was something more deeper, more profound, more spectacular. It was the realm of saving power which he accomplished on the cross. His realm is a place of seeking his glory, his splendor as the Savior and as the Lord above all else. So it's a realm of saving power. It's a realm of righteousness. A place where moral purity is recognized the splendor of God's will, and living according to that. Delighting to abide by God's law as a means of expressing our knowledge and love for God. Turn with me to Romans 14. Romans 14. Jesus contrasts, excuse me, not Jesus, but God contrasts it under, as the Holy Spirit. Romans 14, verse 17. That it isn't to be judged according to the Old Testament system. It's to be reflected in what Jesus has accomplished as a realm of righteousness. 
Paul is interacting with those who, who don't eat meat because it may be sacrificed to idols or something like that. And then he says in verse 17, 14 verse 17, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. Now he's looking at Old Testament regulations and he says that's not the character of God's kingdom. That's not what Christ has come to restore. The work that Christ has done is to establish a kingdom of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever in this way, whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. It's a realm of righteousness. It's a realm of friendship with God. It's a realm of peace. Not eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. It will include suffering and sacrifice because that is the character of God's love and of our response to Him. So it's a realm of saving power. It's a realm of righteousness. It's also a state of blessedness where we have a deep and intimate communion with the triune God that is more precious than all the silver and the gold of this world. That is more powerful than any political influence and more glorious than anything we could imagine. That communion with the triune God is the greatest fruit and the greatest indication of the presence of this kingdom. And now, as we take out our telescope, we will see as we study what happened at the first mountain will happen through time. That Christ's work will be opposed. That this kingdom, which is a, a realm of saving power, which is a realm of righteousness, which is a state of blessedness, is going to be resisted and attacked. That Christ's work and His dominion and His rule And that's the meaning of this little horn. And yes, there's the fourth beast, the Roman Empire. The ten horns are the rule of this empire. And what an astounding empire it is. And and how magnificent is is its its, uh, deadliness. And how overwhelming is its power. And yet, Jesus Christ sits in authority over that. You know, we're coming to the time of Christmas. And we celebrate that Jesus came in the fullness of time to accomplish God's purpose. And God had orchestrated everything. He'd calmed the sea so that Christ could come. He had orchestrated the Roman Empire. But this was an evil and and an ungodly empire. And it's reflected throughout. And yet God accomplished an astounding purpose because in this fourth kingdom, while this fourth kingdom was ruling on earth, He overthrew it through the work of His Son. He overthrew all satanic influence. And this little horn, there's various identifications, but I would suggest that that one of the the clear fulfillments of this little horn is Julius Caesar. Because it was under him that the calendar was rearranged, verse 25, uh, that uh, 
uh, under his rule, dominion was given into his hands and he changed the times. He established the months of August and July. July is named after Julius Caesar. He's the one who took control. His power and his empire was so great that he wanted a calendar to reflect his authority. That's why we have the Julian calendar. It was under the emperors of Rome that Christianity suffered its most intense persecutions as it was regarded as an illicit religion. Verse 21 reminds us of this. This horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. Prevailed over them until Christ accomplished His purpose. And yet, even here, there's an awareness of its limitation. Verse 22, the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. God would defend their cause and the saints would be the one to possess the kingdom. Or again, verse 25, He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the laws and they shall be given into His hand for a time, times and half a time. There's a limited time to which this authority and this power will have control. And now as we take our telescope, we recognize there's a near and a far fulfillment. There's a very particular way that Jesus has fulfilled this. Revelation 20 reminds us of the wonder that Satan has been bound and all his authority and dominion has come under God's control. And yet there is rebellion that we face. So let us consider how this is already established and not yet there in all of its fullness. Let's consider, because this little horn is sometimes referred to as the Antichrist who is coming. But what does God's Word expect with the Antichrist? Turn with me to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John 2. If this little horn is the Antichrist, let us recognize that this Antichrist has already come. He has appeared. And yet we're warned that Satan will have a little season at the end of time. But let's first of all consider how the Antichrist has come. 1 John 2, verse 18. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now, now, John says, many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They, that is the Antichrists, went out from us, but were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not, they are all, are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar? but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. Listen also 1 John 4, verses 1-3. through 1 John 4, again making the same point. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. 
For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming, and now is in the world already. One more reference to John 7. To John 7, verse 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves that you may, we, you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. The antichrist has come. And the antichrist is coming. He's already been here. He's been here in the spirit of deceit and lies and denial of what Jesus Christ has done. Before we get overwhelmed with trying to pick who is the Antichrist, you know, through history, there's a number of people who've been picked as the Antichrist. It's been the Pope. It's been Hitler. It's been Henry Kissinger. It's been a whole variety of other men. And everyone thinks, oh, we found the Antichrist. But you hear what John is saying? Wake up, people of God. Do you realize that biblical ignorance, immoral living, Lying and deceiving, denying the confession of Jesus Christ is more dangerous than political oppression because that reflects the coming of the Antichrist. Now there will be, as we take out our telescope, there will be a final fulfillment. There will be a future rebellion. Revelation 20 tells us it is a little season which Satan is loosed on this world for God's design. And it will be limited. Daniel 7 verse 25 reminds us it's time, times, and half a time. It's a limited time that God is completely in control and He's not abandoning His elect. In fact, Jesus assures us, Matthew 24 verse 22, if those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. What is the implication? When you fear the Antichrist and you think that he is coming, it's all the more reason to run and flee to the protection and the preservation of Jesus Christ and to find comfort in him because he will save the elect. That's the character of his kingdom. And so we stand. And as we conclude this afternoon, we stand between the two mountains. These are the last days. Jesus has established the kingdom. It's already here, but not yet in all of its fullness. There will be resistance. There will be persecutions and sufferings. But that is nothing new. That's what Jesus alerted us to. That's why John Gorris writes it so beautifully in, in this song that we've just sung. As for Christ... So for his own. It's well known, this story. First, the cross. Then, 
the crown. That's the path to glory. It's the Gospel. It's the way of Christ. It's the way of His kingdom. Yes, it's a saving realm. A realm of saving power. Yes, it's a, it's a tremendous blessing as, as we recognize it's a state of blessedness. Yes, it's a realm of righteousness, but all of this will be resisted and Satan will do his utmost. But what is our calling? We're going to sing of that. Lead on, O King Eternal. The day of March has come with deeds of love and mercy. The heavenly kingdom comes. Is that our response? To pour out more deeds of love and mercy in a world that is becoming more oppressive and hostile to Christianity? To respond to that because our King is ruling on high and the way that He wants to advance His kingdom? Is that the story we love? First the cross? Then the crown, that's the path to glory. It's that way for Christ. It's that way for us. With deeds of love and mercy, the heavenly kingdom comes. Or to pick up on one John, are we confessing the truth and living under the dominion of Jesus Christ and displaying that our strength for the ages is to display the kingdom in that way. To stand on the truth. Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. He has ascended on high. He's gone into the eternal throne room. And there for the church, He is ruling over dominions and powers and He has all authority given to Him. And we yield allegiance because He is our King. That's Daniel's message. That's Daniel's anticipation. And he had to wait and he had to look forward and it wore him out and he was anxious and overwhelmed because of it. Now we have the full revelation and the full story and we see how it's all worked out. Let us be as fervent and diligent as Daniel not to neglect our Lord and Savior, but to bow before Him and to trust that He will accomplish His purpose. So confess the truth. Christ is King. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And all dominion shall serve and obey Him. That's never in question. But how we show that is. That's the warning of John and of Daniel and of God's Word for us. And it's a call for us to confess and live in Christ's kingdom. That's the vision that God calls us to say. Not to doubt. Not to think that evil has the upper hand. Not to think that we will ever be extinguished. But to find our prosperity not in political power, material or social acceptance, but in the confidence of the righteousness of God. May God help us to follow our King. Amen.